and welcome back to the LCRR podcast. Joey Zanaboni here with a real St. Louis legend. It's Mike Claiborne, who's been in the St. Louis area, radio and television for 37 years. He's one of the voices of the St. Louis Cardinals, covered everything from the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup. Uh, now it's his first time on the LCRR podcast. And boy, are we really happy to have him here. Mike, how you doing today? I'm good. I'm, it took me 38 years to get to this program, and uh, I'm glad you invited me. Well, we've only been on the air for 41, so you're not oh. uh, that far behind. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time, but uh, we're still still plugging away. Uh, Mike, you know, it's been such an interesting week in baseball. It seems like things have come to a halt, and just about 15, 20 minutes ago, I saw an update that uh, Tony Clark, Rob Manfred, had a sit-down, an actual face-to-face in Arizona that was described as positive. Uh, interesting times. Obviously, no one's 100% sure what the future holds, but Let's start here. Uh, any hope that there's a win-win situation to get this season off the ground? Well, yeah, I think there is. I, I think the question is, why did it take this long for the two heads to meet? Obviously, their underlings couldn't get a deal done. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of back-channeling that obviously takes place in these situations. But to hear that this is the first time that they've met during this whole ordeal, I just find shocking. And, and I understand you can talk on the phone and all of that, but it's come to that where somebody, I'm sure both sides, uh, their parties have said, hey, look, go get the deal done. I think the owners have said it to Manfred. I'm sure the players have said it to Tony Clark. Let's go get the deal done. And the big boys now have to roll up their sleeves and, and sit in the room. And, and I anticipate something happening this week. And do you think the current constraints on communication, having to do so much through Zoom, through phone, digitally, do you think that has some impact on, on just the uh, sort of stalling of the negotiations? No, I don't think so. I think if anything, it probably enhanced a situation where you were having face-to-face meetings, um, but you know, nothing replaces you know reality of being in the room. But I just wonder why it took this long for these guys to be in the same room together. Um, now, the, the the challenge that you also ran into is you had some people. Who, who had not had a lot of experience at this on both sides of the fence. And to allow them to carry the ball this long without any sort of real progress, I think is a head scratcher. And I think when we look back on this, we'll say to ourselves, why weren't these guys more engaged before now? Do you think this is doing long-term damage to the sport and to uh, yes. MLB? Yeah, I think it has. Uh, now, granted, America's a pretty forgiving society, but I think when Thank you God. Think- Pandemic. You think about um, how many people are out of work. You think about the other sports leagues that are coming on board. Now, granted, I don't want anybody to think that because the NBA and the NHL are closer to playing than baseball, that they're all in the same boat because they're not. One of the things you got to take into account is that the NHL and the NBA have virtually finished their regular season. Those guys had already made their money for the year. They were just trying to figure out the safest way to finish the season, that be it postseason, uh, compared to baseball, who had not finished spring training. So there, there was a big difference with regard to the money and where it was going and who was going to make it. And you touched on the NHL and the uh, NBA potentially coming back here. Um, maybe let's just ask about uh, the NHL. What's your take on this uh, restart plan? Do you think it's feasible? And how do you think the Blues will fare in this kind of uh, condensed and shortened uh, run here to the end? Well, I, th- I think you're going to get the same amount of games for the most part. Uh, it's more of a round-robin tournament. Um, you'll reseed and things of that nature. 
Um, but I like what the NHL is trying to do. Uh, they had to start somewhere. And listen, there is no perfect plan here, okay? This is something we've never encountered before. So you're going to have a lot of people that are trying to throw this on the wall. They're going to see what sticks and then go from there. Uh, I like the Blues' chances a lot. I know some people have not favored them to win the whole thing, but I guess my question would be what team is better suited for the long haul? I mean, they're pretty deep. And that's something that a lot of teams won't be. Obviously, they're going to be healthy with Tarasenko coming back. Uh, they have road experience. I mean, winning a game seven in Boston is one of the challenging things in sports. And I think more than anything else, they've got the band back together. I mean, they haven't many, lost many people. Obviously, losing Jay Bowmeister is going to be a challenge because of his experience. But Scandella was playing pretty well but when he, before this whole thing unfolded. Throw in the fact that you've got some youth, um, that some guys have got a chance to play, whether it's a Cairo or Clem Costin and uh, Nikola, uh, some young players that were in their minor league system. So if they need to go deeper, they've got some kids with some hockey experience on the pro level. So I like their chances a lot more than I like some other teams. And the, the other thing is this. When you play in the playoffs, it's a different style of hockey. It's a heavier, more physical style and you really get in the faces of people, unlike in the regular season where it's a skater's game. Uh, the Blues are, are custom-fitted for postseason. And I think uh, if they don't run into any injury, if they get a hot goalie, they can win the whole thing again. This is Mike Claiborne here in the LCRR podcast, bullish about the Blues and uh, hopeful for the 2020 MLB season. Mike, uh, what's it been now with the St. Louis Cardinals? Is this your 13th year or your 14th year coming up? Well, I started in 2006 uh, when I came back from uh, uh, All Sports Radio. We started at K KTRS, and uh, when they, KTRS lost the contract, I went back to my home, KMOX, and have been with the Cardinals since 2006. But I've been hey. in the business since uh, 81, so I'm getting old, man. Well, that was a good time. That was a great Cardinal team that was there in 81 and kind of suffered from the split season with the uh, labor stoppage. Uh, I think that was the year where they had like the first half best record, yeah. second half back best record. Yeah. Uh, it, it's tough with these labor stoppages or these, these labor disagreements because so many uh, great teams or great players maybe miss out uh, on – uh, just the year of development or the year to really showcase their skills. Uh, kind of being around the Cardinals, uh, what are people saying about, you know, guys just uh, staying in shape, staying positive? Uh, what's the mood? Are people still still optimistic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these guys have been working on their own. It's been a different setup. Uh, I think if the Cardinals – and I don't know how many games we're going to play. We may play 50. We may play 80. I don't know. But I think the Cardinals are in pretty good shape because they've got more pitching than most teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're not asking your starters to go seven innings. You're asking them to give you five because you got a deep bullpen. Uh, they're going to expand the rosters, obviously. And when you think about the guys that this organization has, especially pitching, that has big league experience and they're under the age of 25, 26 years old, you have to like what they can offer you. Now, the question will be, will they be able to put enough offense together and I think that's something we have to determine because now with the DH, you can move some people around a little bit, but you've got to have, you've got to have your, your main guys play, play well for you offensively. Defensively, they're as good as anybody. So if they don't make mistakes in the field and they can pitch a little bit, that's going to give them a decided advantage over some other teams. Now, obviously, you've got the Dodgers you would have to contend with if you get to postseason 
and you got some other good teams out there. But when you look at the central division that they're going to be in and the teams that they're going to be playing, what's not like not to like about the Cardinals? I mean, the Cubs are going through a new manager. I don't know if they have enough pitching. Milwaukee, we don't know what they're going to do. And then when you look on the other side in the central division of the American League, Cleveland's a really good team. Um, that's a team you might want to pay attention to. Minnesota is a really good team. Uh, they can swing the bat with anybody. But I think, you know, when it's all said and done, the Cardinals should have a place at the table. And what players specifically do you think will benefit the most maybe from having that new DH role? Matt Carpenter. Yeah. Um, you know, Matt Carpenter is not the defensive player that, that Tommy Edmond is. And you want to get Edmonds bat in the lineup because he's a switch hitter. I think Matt Carpenter would bode well as a, as a DH. Uh, at least we think he can. Now, I know he's been working on his swing and doing all the things that everybody says you do in the offseason. Uh, we didn't get a chance to see a lot of that in spring training. So you got to hope that when we do resume, he will be able to pick up where he hoped to have left off. And one of the things with him is staying healthy. So, you know, that, that's the guy who I think can benefit the most from it as far as a DH on a temporary basis. Um, you know, you may look at an outfield situation. Maybe Dylan Carlson gets some at-bats and Dexter Fowler's your DH. Or, you know, you can move that around a little bit. You've got some options in a couple of different positions where you can do that. This is Mike Claiborne here on the LCRR podcast talking about the 2020 Cardinals. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started to hear about the uh, future of the minor leagues, and I know that's something you're very interested in. I'm the voice in Johnson City, and there's been a lot of questions about uh, – kind of that going forward, not just this season, but it seems like the minor leagues in general are uh, contracting and uh, condensing. Uh, what's your thought on that? Do you feel like that uh, maybe is going to be good financially, but uh, harm the game long-term? Do you still think there's a sort of a future in these, in these local communities? I, I would hope so. Uh, I just think they have to reconfigure things. Um, you know, there was a time when teams had 10, 15 minor league operations. Um, but now it hasn't become as profitable for them. I mean, you, you make a big investment to hopefully get a guy to the big leagues. And, and I think most people probably should understand this. You know, for all the kids who play high school, college, minor leagues, um, only 5% of them ever put their foot in the batter's box once. So, you know, you're trying to find a half a dozen, 10 guys that, that eventually can come play for you. The rest of them will service your minor leagues. They will also be products that you can use in making deals with other teams. So, you know, when you look at the outlay of cash that you're investing, you're talking about a million bucks minimum per team. Uh, I mean, per, you know, as far as your minor league operations are concerned. And granted, minor league players don't make any money. As you well know, Joey, that these guys really have to scuffle in order to survive. So what I think you're going to see is, You'll see some minor league cities, Johnson City being one of them. I'm sure they're going to have dialogue with other uh, teams or cities in the region where they can reduce their travel expenses and make sure that everybody, you know, shares in the pot in some way, shape, or form. Maybe there's a major sponsor who wants to get involved in trying to save it because I think places like Johnson City certainly deserve some sort of baseball. I think the owners of these teams have to be smarter in how they go about doing some things as well. And maybe you don't have a, a direct affiliate, but maybe you get with a, an organization and, and maybe you house a half a dozen of the players, something along that line. 
or you may see them go more the independent route, uh, like we see with Frontier League Baseball and, and some other leagues that have found a happy medium. But I think you have to figure out a way how it's going to be more cost effective and be attractive to major league teams to want to invest. And I guess that the questions that sort of the contraction does raise is, does baseball still have the same cultural impact across America that it did even just 20 years ago? Do you still believe that on a whole uh, that the game will continue to be popular? I think we're at a crossroads right now. Um, Not only just the major league level, but I think all across the board because baseball has allowed other activities, sports, to really kind of come into play and challenge them during a time when they basically had the summer to itself. Now with the pandemic, that's going to create create a greater challenge because it's going to do two things. There, there probably won't be baseball on the minor league level this year. Right. So that means somebody's going to fill that void. Now the, the hockey and the basketball are going to be a couple of things, but remember joy, people have been sitting in their homes for almost three months and they found other activities to fill that void. Now, is that an activity that can be ongoing where they're gonna be able to do this on a regular basis down the road? Or is it something that you build on? I I don't know. And I think we're all still trying to feel our way through what's next. But I think baseball had the opportunity to, to really solidify themselves and the current labor situation is not helping that cause at all. And it's giving people other options to, to explore. And this really does seem to be a unique situation and a unique opportunity that Major League Baseball has missed. Even before this, though, there were some changes that were coming to the game. You think about the rule that a pitcher has to face three batters that was said to be instituted here in 2020. On a personal level, uh, what kind of changes would you institute if you were the commissioner or in charge of the game that maybe would uh, enhance the appeal, shorten the game, anything like that? Well, you know, I, I think pace of play is still important, man. I don't think anyone has the patience to sit through a three-and-a-half-hour baseball game. Um, I, I think that there's some things you can probably look at pace of play-wise, like starting off, two things, throw strikes, and also stay in the batter's box. You know, they had gotten off to a pretty good start with that a couple of years ago. Uh, and we saw the pace of play increase a little bit when you had guys that would stay in the box. Well, they got away from it. They would just send you a letter, maybe find you quietly. And players didn't seem to care. Uh, I think you've got to do that. I think you've got to you, – now, I know that some people don't like the, the pitching juggling where, you know, you have a guy that you're looking for a matchup. I don't think we have time for that anymore. I mean, you, if you can pitch in this game, you ought to be able to pitch to both sides of the plate. And if you can't, then you probably shouldn't be here. Uh, and I think that the, if you notice how slow the game becomes – after the fifth inning. You know, we can breeze through a game through five. And then all of a sudden you start making pitching changes because you're looking for a matchup. You're looking for a lefty-lefty matchup or you're looking for a guy who gets a guy out in this situation more often than not. I don't know if we can afford to do that as much as we used to because I think it really takes away uh, from the pace of the game. Uh, Now, obviously you lose a little strategy if you're going to have the DH, that's going to create a little bit more offense. And I think people want to see people swing the bat. Okay. I don't think anybody wants to go to the ballpark to watch a guy walk three times a night. They want to see him swing the bat. I think they want to see guys throw strikes and we want to see guys, you know, do something with him when it's coming in their direction. 
So the, those are the little things you can do. I, I know that they're tinkering with some other things. Uh, the electronic strike zone is something mm -hmm. that's been discussed, and I'm, I don't know if it's been implemented in your league or not. I think it's coming. Uh, I think they've assured the umpires they won't lose jobs with it, so I think it's coming. They've got to be able to, to refine it technically because you can skip a ball in the dirt. If it goes through the zone, they're going to call it a strike. So I think right. that we're going to need a home plate umpire just to regulate what's an actual strike if it comes down to that and also still control the game for the other things that take place. Uh, so those are some of the things I, I think we're going to see, and I hope that enhances the game. But we still have to find ways to make it entertaining. Um, you know, baseball has the, the oldest group of uh, viewers. 57, I think, is the average that, age. That, that's, you know, that, that's not going to work. You know, we've got to find things that are going to create interest for kids because they are the future of the game. And until we figure that out, I think that baseball is going to be stuck for a while because 57 turns into 67 and 67 turns into 77 and 77, there's no guarantee. And the earning power and the spending power of people of that age isn't what it used to be either. So you, you got to make sure that you match the two, the youth and disposable income. Did you see Long Gone Summer, the McGuire Sosa documentary? I've had a chance to watch it. Uh, have had a chance? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. And so what was, your, what was your take on that? Well, you know, I like the way they painted the picture and kind of led us up to these individuals as people and their impact, uh, I think the downer was we found out later that guys were using, well, at least one guy admitted it, that he was using something that was now considered a performance-enhancing drug. At that time, it wasn't. Uh, it was a fun time for baseball because we needed something to kind of create interest. It was probably more attractive to people in the Midwest than it would be somebody in Colorado or, or Seattle or, or L.A., uh, but overall, I thought it was a it was a nice piece. Not because I was in it, but I thought to hear Jack Buck and some other guys, uh, they it made it fun. It brought back a lot of fun memories, and I'm happy why I was able to do it. Uh, you know, because I wasn't sure if he'd want to revisit that, but he did, and I thought he did a nice job in kind of letting us know what was going through his mind at the time. I'm not sure if a guy could weather that storm, though, with everything that goes on with social media and camera phones and how the media deals with guys today. And, Joey, that's going to be something that we're going to see how we're going to deal with players once we come back to work. Uh, you know, we, we won't have the access that we used to. And I think you probably already know that the, the broadcasters are not going to travel this year uh, for safety reasons. I found it a little odd, though. If we're already traveling with them and we stay in the same hotel, we're on the same buses going to the ballpark, what separates the broadcasters who have already been doing it? Mm -hmm. What's the difference? But I understand the less is better as far as people who would be in a position to be exposed to the virus. But I think they'll obviously revamp that. And I think we'll see some changes that will be temporary this year, but maybe some will be implemented and how they'll do things in the future. Uh, what is your sort of feeling about broadcasting games remotely? I, I don't know as much about the major league level, but is that something that you've done in the past, just sitting with a monitor? Um, what, no, what's your approach? Not very much of it. Uh, and I got news for you. Most of the people I work with have never done it. Yeah. So my question was when it was posed uh, that this is how they were going to go. So if I'm sitting at home and the Cardinals are in Wrigley Field mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Are you going to have a monitor that's going to show me that there's a shift on the infield? You're going to have another monitor that's going to show me that the outfield is playing a guy to pull. And you're going to have a monitor to let me know that the wind is blowing out at Wrigley Field or blowing in. Because if you know anything about baseball, and I know you do, that all those things come into play if you're trying to do a broadcast. And especially in places where the, the elements have a significant impact. And Wrigley Field leads the way. Um, you know, and there's some other ballparks around the country that um, the wind can do tricky things. And if you don't know the lineup and don't, don't know the alignment defensively, you know, you might as well uh, not even try and do it because I think those are important elements of a game, you know, the defensive alignment. And if we don't have access to see how that works, I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for everybody. And so what was the response? Will there be monitors that allow you to look at those things? We have no idea. Yeah. I think that, you know, they're trying to figure this out as we go. And, and you know, I'm not trying to criticize people who are trying to make these decisions because they don't know. I mean, we've never done this before. So I think, uh, you know, I think we have to do a better job of listening to people who actually will be on the call. Um, and so where we go from here, I don't know. I'm just going to wait and whatever they tell me, this is where we like to try and do it. Let's try and do it and see what happens. Uh, so in December, right around Christmas, I actually broadcasted a couple of games in the Australian Baseball League, and I did it for my parents' basement, uh, which was uh, a challenge. And, and it was it was kind of a just a learning experience. That was the first time I had really done that. Uh, I was impressed by how uh, sophisticated the camera setup was that's really an independent minor league and so to have a five camera deal uh did make it relatively easy to at least understand the action but uh i felt kind of withdrawn from it and it was harder to pick up on the subtleties of the game um so it, it just had kind of a mixed i had kind of a mixed feeling about it because it was a cool well, experience but it, it was definitely challenging you know I, I think some sports you could do it with you know i know that um the olympics and they've done cycling um, there's some other sports you can get away with it. You know, you can probably get away with it in football. Um, you know, but I think baseball, because of the, the situation and the positions and obviously the elements, um, it, it's a little bit of a different bird. Now, obviously, they're doing it with ESPN in the Korean League. I don't find that attractive whatsoever. But, you know, they, I, and, and, and here's the other difference. I think TV is different from radio and how you mm -hmm. do this. With TV, there's plenty of pictures to kind of paint it, to paint what's going on. But in radio, you're at the mercy of TV and the director on what camera angles and what shots you're going to have. Uh, and again, when you're being descriptive in radio, you need to let people know if the infield's in for the play at the plate or the third baseman's playing a guy for the bunt or they've got the shift on because this guy's been a dead pole hitter. The same thing applies in the outfield, you know, on how you want to position the guy. So those things you have to give description to compared to being on TV where it kind of speaks for itself. So I, I really think that there's a lot of things that still have to be worked out. I think we'll probably do a practice game or two just to get a feel for what to expect. Um, and those are all things that still have to be determined because we don't even know when we're going to be playing. But Believe me, once they say this is when we're going to play, I think we'll see a lot of people go into motion and trying to be as best prepared as they can uh, leading up to the actual start. 
So we had John Shambi on here, and uh, he was a guest just about a month before he started doing the Korean baseball organization games. And, uh, you know, Boog is a great, great announcer. Watching the Korean baseball organization games, there's not a lot of play-by-play announcing that that goes on. There's a lot of interviews. It seems like there's just kind of that television, let the images carry the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it's still interesting, and he's a great guy and a great announcer, but I wish they would actually just carry the Korean announcers on the uh, ESPN uh, broadcast. I'm a big fan of uh, baseball announcing in Taiwan and Japan and South Korea. I just think it gives a, a different perspective, and it's also just very exciting. I don't pretend to speak any of those languages, so I can't say I understand the the subtleties of it. But do you ever listen to, um, you know, baseball announcing either in Asia or or any foreign country? Does that ever uh, kind of factor in? Now the Cardinals have two great uh, Spanish yeah. language announcers, um, but do you have any any sort of uh, interest in that kind of stuff? Well, you know, I, it's, it's interesting you bring that question up because I sat in with Polo and Benji mm-hmm. this year. My, my Spanish is muy poquito, okay? I mean, I can, I can kind of disseminate some of the things that are going on, and then you apply common sense to what you're watching, and you kind of have a feel for it. But I think as a casual fan, that might not wear well. Uh, I, I think it's a nice novelty to have, and I think we're very fortunate to have two really good guys who translate things into the Spanish language. But I think for me to sit at home and watch that, uh, I don't think I'd have great interest in uh, trying to figure out another language. Now, granted, I'm, I'm, this is what I do for a living, so I can probably figure it out a lot sooner. But I think if you're trying to appeal to the masses to have a guy from Korea on to try to, uh, to talk about it, I think that might get old quick. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe occasionally, maybe at, uh, you know, just every every so often an interval to uh, have a little bit more of that just to expose the the American baseball public to the global game there was a representative from the KBO just doing an interview on ESPN I think a day or two ago and he just said you know we just see this as a missed opportunity that the MLB has not restarted uh, to globalize the game and well uh, here's what I would say to that and, and I think if you're going to do something like that your, your base is probably more to the Spanish audience, Spanish-speaking mm-hmm. audience, than it is the Korean audience or the Japanese audience. Um, you know, now, if you're playing, if you're doing it in China where there's a bigger market, maybe there's something to it. But I think if you're going to tailor your game to be global, you need to find the languages that are most comfortable for fans. And I think the NBA proved that when they went to, when they went to Europe, they went to Italy, they went to Spain, they went to France, they went to places where the language was a little bit more universal, even if it wasn't the first language of Americans. Yeah, I, I think that any opportunity to uh, globalize baseball, I think is going to be uh, beneficial to the game. I hope that the MLB can come back uh, sort of as at least a, a symbol with these other leagues that the MLB is still trying to uh, appeal to a global audience. It's been, you know, such a tough time, but uh, that exposure to Asian baseball, uh, maybe it's been one of the positives out of this. This is uh, Mike Claiborne here on the LCRR podcast. Mike, it's been a, a turbulent time for the country and I've read uh, many things about you. I, I've uh, admired you for a long time and maybe it was a year or two ago. Uh, you did an interview about uh, St. Louis and you said St. Louis is a nice place to live, but 
Um, maybe it's a little further behind in terms of uh, racial equality and erasing some of the, the horrors of discrimination and prejudice uh, compared to maybe a city like Atlanta or Denver, I think you used as an example. Um, where, where have you seen maybe progress in the St. Louis area? And, and uh, do you still feel like um, better days are ahead? Do you feel like this has been, I guess, the social movement, the Black Lives Matter movement? Do you feel like that's pushed, pushed us ahead? Do you feel like this might be an inflection point? No, not really. I don't think St. Louis has progressed very much since I made the comments. Uh, I see too much internal uh, bickering or traditions that we've seen that I think have held St. Louis back uh, politically, racially, socially, just territorially in how St. Louis is constructed. Uh, I don't see much of a change. I, I, I hear a lot of conversation, mm -hmm. but I don't see much change. And, and I think when you talk about social unrest and racial injustice, when I look at the police department, and let's just start with that, you have two different unions, a black one, a white one, and yet they're supposed to put on the uniform and represent the blue, and they have their own internal differences on how policing should work. So that, that's, that's the first problem that we have with, with St. Louis. And I'm sure there are other communities that have similar setups, but we're talking about St. Louis. Right. I think politically, when you look at how this city is constructed, where you have the city and the county, and you, you can't, they, they can't agree on anything, and they're servicing the same people, uh, that, that's a problem. And we, we, we're, we're not sure on how to consolidate because that means somebody might lose a job or somebody might lose some influence. There's very little trust between black politicians and white politicians, and that, that's got to stop. Uh, seldom do they work together on anything. They protect the north side and they protect the south side and, and nothing gets done. Um, I think even how we cover things in St. Louis media-wise probably needs to have a different look. I've I, I watched some of my friends do, do really good stories only to be ostracized by someone on Twitter or Facebook or whatever for all the wrong reasons. So I don't think we've progressed as much as we, we have seen other cities grow whether it's Kansas City or Denver or Indianapolis. And I always, you know, in my travels, I think what I've tried to see, you can tell when a city's growing and you look at how many cranes are in the sky, how much construction is going on, who's moving there. We don't see that in St. Louis. I mean, we've had a couple of construction elements. They built an apartment building on Kings Highway and Ballpark Village is being built. Where else is there real growth in St. Louis? Um, we don't have major companies moving here. Now, we've got more tech companies that are starting to have a footprint in St. Louis. But I don't think we have the leadership at, at various levels to really give us the, the wherewithal to feel like we can really be progressive three years, five years, 10 years down the road. And how about in the sport of baseball? There's been a lot of talk over the last 10, 20 years about the decline in Black representation among Major League Baseball managers, mm -hmm. for example, uh, front office executives. Do you feel like in the last decade or two, maybe baseball has taken a step backwards in terms of racial injustice? <clears throat> yeah, I think they have. Uh, they're trying to fix it team by team now. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy that the Cardinals, and not because I work for them, but I, I've seen incremental growth where there's uh, – a little bit more diversity compared to some other teams. And, and 
And I, I like the direction that they're trying to go. But, you know, you, you don't do it overnight. Um, I, I think the manager situation is a real concern because we don't even have a lot of black coaches that are bench coaches. And, you know, there was a time that if you wanted to, it's like in football, where if you wanted to be a head coach, you had to be a coordinator. Well, now they've kind of, you know, circumvented that process of bench coaches where they're bringing in guys who are analytic guys. Well, how many African-Americans have had an opportunity to explore that element? We don't see a lot of black scouts anymore. And we don't see guys in the front office as much either because it's still a good old boy network for the most part, you know, where you've had relationships with people that you feel comfortable with. And, you know, for the most part, I get it, but that doesn't necessarily always make it right. And I don't want people to give jobs to people just because of the color of their skin either. You know, I mean, believe it or not, there's some guys who really have worked their butts off to, to try and excel, but they just don't get the opportunities or second or third chances. And, and the manager thing really kind of is glaring with that regard where you can see guys that can get fired and then all of a sudden they show up somewhere else and they weren't very good in the old job, but right. they'll pass over somebody. And I, I think the Dusty Baker situation where they had to dust Dusty off and have him come in and try and save an organization because of Houston Astros and their cheating scandal. And everyone thought that was an ideal hire. Dusty mm-hmm. Baker, 71 years old. You mean to tell me that there weren't any other black candidates that, that were eligible for the job? Now, granted, it's a unique situation, but you don't even hear when all these jobs become available in the offseason, you don't hear uh, black guys being mentioned as potential candidates for the jobs. Oh, they may get an interview, but they never get the job. And, and I think that that's been systemic within professional sports uh, over the years. And, and now with Black Lives Matters, here's what I tell people. And I'm trying to put all this in one boat. America has to do a better job of listening, whether it's white America, black America, let's just make it America, okay? Because I think we use titles too much uh, you're conservative, you're liberal, you're an American is what you are. You're black, you're white, you're, no, you're American first. And we don't listen to each other. You know, um, and I think when you see Black Lives Matters in the protests, all they're trying to do is get people to listen. Because if it wasn't for a camera phone, if it wasn't for this phone, we'd have never thought George Floyd's situation could exist in this country. I got news for you, they exist every day. But we don't see it every day. But we, you know, black people have been telling people all the all the time what goes on, and people who are, don't look like them just kind of oh here we go or there's a eye roll or they finish the sentence for you before you can finish it yourself. They're not listening. So this situation has created a reason for people to listen to what's actually going on, and once they actually see it and hear it for themselves, they're appalled, and then now they say, well, what can I do? Well, what the first thing you can do is be a better listener and no one's got the, the, the answer. Okay. There's not one answer here, but we, if we have a, a, a better opportunity to listen, that creates conversation and conversation creates ideas. Ideas become eventually implemented or laws are passed and things of that nature. So it, it's a combination of things that leads up to some sort of legitimate resolution and it's going to take time, but we're running out of it because I think people are tired of seeing it and they're tired of dealing with it on a regular basis. Well, that was quite an answer and uh, covering a lot of bases. You did it very well. Um, You know, when I was uh, first sort of getting into minor league baseball in 2015, 
I was with an affiliate of the Los Angeles Angels, and they tried to do a promotion called Caucasian Heritage Night. And I ended up leaving the team in protest because I felt like it was uh, racist. It was just uh, wrong. It was meant to offend people and to try to get uh, attention for the team in sort of a very negative uh, way. And it really opened my eyes to some of the problems of professional baseball where people around that team and then a lot of people I think who were who were fans I guess they they didn't see any problem with um that kind of uh that kind of ideology in a baseball stadium in a in a professional uh sort of uh, deal and it was a complicated situation I made the choice to to leave the team and 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 I don't look back and regret it but uh, I, I guess I, I wondered after sort of the whirlwind of it passed, what sort of concrete actions would be taken by Major League and Minor League Baseball to increase diversity and to commit to making the game um, one that that reaches out to and supports African Americans specifically. And I guess I was wondering if maybe you could just touch on that. I know you said that there was well, some progress being made. What what kind of uh, tangible things do you feel like they're doing to uh, to make that a, a reality? Well, I, I think one of the things when you when you start having heritage nights, and the Cardinals have had some. They've had African American Heritage Night. They've had Latin American Heritage Day. It, it's more information. It should be informational. Because you know you can bring your kid to the ballpark, and when if you've seen how we do it in St. Louis, it's one where it's informational. Um, they're playing music, they're, they're talking about their history in the game. And you know, for people who aren't of that persuasion, it gives them a chance to learn. And that's all it's supposed to be is informational. Now, if somebody thinks it's important to have a white heritage night, I guess my question would be, what have we missed considering that these, these same people write the books on their history, they have a multiple vehicles to discuss it. And if they feel threatened because somebody else would like to talk about what they've been able to do and with their contribution to the game, then they've got a bigger problem because this is not a situation where anybody's trying to take over anything. We just want to be part of it. Right. That, that's it. You know, and, and I don't think anybody's looking for special treatment. The reason why you have these, these designated heritage evenings or afternoons is it's more informational. And, and again, go back to listening, paying attention, not being afraid to embrace another heritage or have a better understanding, which may answer other questions you've always wanted to ask. Yeah, acknowledging the, the cultures that have really shaped baseball, but were ignored for so many years is, you know, so important. And I, I think that, you know, that that entire thing was so misguided with the Caucasian Heritage Night, it just was so off base that I, I kind of described it as being like in a South Park episode where it just well, is kind no, of- you're right. And, and I commend you for, for making a decision of that nature. Uh, and, and hopefully other people would understand why you did it because uh, it's not something that probably had the, the, the best intention. Let's just put it that way. Now there may be people who said, well, we weren't trying to harm anybody or trying to offend anybody. Well, Maybe, maybe you weren't, but it may have come across that way. Right, right. A uh, lot being discussed here with uh, Mike Claiborne, one of the stars, really, of Long Gone Summer, as well as the longtime fixture right here in the uh, St. Louis sports media community. Mike, uh, what advice do you have for 
a young broadcaster like myself trying to uh, break into the industry and get to the level that you're at where you are in Bush Stadium, you have voice the Cardinals, you are uh, somebody who's extremely well respected, not only in this market, but across the nation. I know you've talked about the importance of grit and just doing a lot of grunt work. Maybe if you could just expand on that. What What is the importance well, of doing those jobs? Yeah. I think there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a hard job, first of all. Uh, the reason why everybody thinks they can do it is because the people at the highest levels are really good at making it look easy. I think the one thing I always try and tell young people is pay attention. I, I think that we are so enamored with trying to absorb every statistic or trying to impress people with us being able to break down analytics. We, we don't listen and we don't pay attention to the game in front of us. And I think we get so pigeonholed into wanting to be one thing compared to expanding your scope of sports. I'm in this business because I know I've made it my business to know every sport. I can have an intelligent conversation with just about anybody about just about any sport. Okay. Uh, some people have decided that they want to centralize things and, and reduce it. And that's fine. But I think that you have to be able to pay attention because you'd be amazed at what you can learn from other sports. Um, you, you have to be able to make a commitment, but you also have to show patience. I think the problem a lot of young people have, they, they don't know that fine line between patience and being aggressive, you know, because everybody wants, they, everybody wants my job today. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they, everybody thinks they, oh, I can do that. Yeah, maybe you could, but you know, there's a process that you have to try and work through to make sure that when you do get it, there are situations that present themselves that you'll be prepared for, you'll be equipped for. Repetition is so important in our industry and in being able to continue to do games or be able to report or be able to write stories. You know, you, you just don't show up thinking, okay, you know what, I've been watching it on TV enough, I, I think I can do this. And you know, Joy, you, you have your own method of preparation of how you're ready for a game and, and it doesn't start five minutes before the game starts. I think the other thing you have to do is be prepared for the challenge. And what I mean by that is you may have your sights set on being a Cardinal broadcaster one day, but all of a sudden the job in Pittsburgh comes open. Well, you know what? I'm in the big leagues. I'm in the system. So once you're in the system, you'd be, you'd be amazed at how things can continue to unfold for your career. And I see so many guys who, well, if I can't work in St. Louis or I can't work here, then I, I don't think I'm going to stay with this. No, get in the system. I, I'll give you a quick story about a young man who worked for the Cardinals. He was an intern, and his internship was up, and he wasn't sure if he was going to get a job within the organization. Well, he got a job in the ticket office. And while he didn't really have a lot of experience in ticket sales, he took the job and, and really kind of battled through it the first year. Mm -hmm. And I reminded him that I knew a guy who started his career uh, in the ticket office and it turned out okay for him. And he said, who was it? I said, it was Mike Shannon. You know, when Mike Shannon had to cut his career short, his first job was working in ticket sales. 
he worked and found other things that were in the system that he was more comfortable with. And some people thought he'd be a good broadcaster. And, you know, 49 years later, here he is. So I say this to say, it's important to get in the system because if broadcasting or writing isn't something for you, as you later determine, maybe there's another element within the organization that you can end up being part of. We've seen guys that were in the PR department that ended up being general managers. We've seen guys who have done different other positions that found themselves running the scouting department. I mean, yeah. there's so many jobs within sports other than being behind a microphone that, that are just as rewarding, that have just as much impact uh, that you can do. Uh, and, and maybe it, it's not cut out for you. So, you know, the hardest thing about this job is when somebody tells you, and it's like when you get cut in baseball, in football or baseball, mm -hmm. and tell you maybe, maybe this isn't for you. And you know what some guys do? They end up coaching. They end up becoming trainers. They end up becoming other things. And the same thing happens in our industry. You know, maybe you're not cut out to be a broadcaster. Maybe you're not cut out to be a writer. But maybe you can be a director or a producer. Or you can do some other things behind the scenes. You know, I mean, so I always tell people, find your middle ground. Don't be afraid to be aggressive. But also understand patience sometimes is your virtue. And don't feel like you can do the job tomorrow when you just started it yesterday. Uh, you know, there's, there's just too many guys who feel like I'm, I should have my turn now. I got news for you. Everybody you see that's doing these games had to do it in a, in a slower and even more methodical manner than what kids do today. And, you know, I, I don't want to say it's dues paying, but it, it probably would be termed that. Because, you know, you've you got to get experience. You've got to get reps. You've got to be in situations where you know how to interview people and you know how to give good description and you know how to be able to figure out the, the conditions and how it's going to impact the game. And we're just talking about baseball here. That applies to the other sports as well. And having a comfort level. I always remind kids that when you're doing a game, it's a conversation. You know, some guys get a little too syrupy in their description Mm -hmm. And it doesn't go over well. But if you're having a conversation where a person's listening in his car or on the back porch or whatever, he feels more connected to you than he would when you have guys who have these bellowing voices and they want to sound like Joe Radio, not not Joey Radio, but they want to sound, <laughs> they want to sound too contrived. It, it's too structured to the point where it's not fun. Yeah, you may be yeah. blessed with a great voice, but if you don't know how to really convey what's going on, in a comfortable manner, in a comfortable setting, uh, it's not going to work. And, and you know, there, there's so many good broadcasters out here. Uh, and some of them don't get the opportunity to get to the big leagues or the NFL or the NHL or the NBA. And, but they found their niche in some other way, shape or form. So that, that would be some of the advice I would give because there's no perfect pattern. Everybody's got their own path to get to the pros. My path is different than John Rooney's and John Rooney's path is different than Mike Shannon's and Mike Shannon's path is different than Ricky Horton's. Um, you know, and Darren McLaughlin's path is, path is different than somebody else's. I mean, everybody's got a different path, but they all have the common understanding of what kind of work that has to go into it from a preparation standpoint. And I think they also learn how to pay attention to what's going on around them where they can convey that in their delivery and whether they're being color or being a play-by-play -play guy.
And so you talked about doing a, a bunch of different sports. For me, I think one of the most uh, interesting experiences, one of the most formative experiences I've had as an announcer was announcing Greyhound racing in Florida, which is actually now illegal uh, in Florida. It was, it was uh, sort of made illegal on a, a ballot initiative wow. uh, about a year or so after I started doing it. But um, yeah, fascinating world for sure. A lot of uh, interesting characters and a lot of interesting dogs as well. Uh, but how about for yourself? Is there something that's been off the uh, beaten path, just uh, maybe one of those sort of wide world of sports type of things yeah. that you did? Yeah. Women's team handball. Okay. Bob Ramsey and I did that, gosh, it had to be 20 year, 25 years ago. And uh, we did women's team handball. They used to have this thing called the Olympic Festival. It was kind uh -huh. of a person to the Olympics. And they had it in St. Louis. And the radio station we were at, wanted to be involved and they said well yeah we got plenty of sports you guys can call and somebody said hey, what about women's team handball yeah what about it and they said we'd like to try and do that because there was a couple of girls from st louis they were on they were trying to promote them was, yeah we'll give it a shot you know we went over the rules and kind of thought about what we would do if it was recess on the playground i'm sure we did it as kids and we had a ball doing it i've done water polo uh there's not many things I haven't done, and, and I've always found a way to have fun with all of them. Um, and, uh, it, it, yeah, I, I, I haven't done Greyhound racing, though. Yeah, it's rare. <laughs> I've had a few Greyhounds, though, over the years. I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it when it was in Florida. We used to go to the track when I, was, when I lived in Jupiter. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think as you get older, and I think most broadcasters will tell you, they all have a story about a sport or an activity they did. John Rooney's got a great story, if we got a minute here. Sure, oh yeah. John was working in a small market in Missouri, and he was doing weekend weather. And, you know, back then they have you do weather and sports. Uh -huh. So he's doing the weekend weather, and he said, it's going to be clear tonight, and it's going to be sunny tomorrow, and, you know, he gave the scores and everything, and he said, yeah, not, we're going to be okay weather-wise, so get out and have some fun tomorrow he walked out and it was like a torrential downpour i mean it, he, he could barely see his car it was raining so hard and you know, he always tells that story and we've all done that in a small market somewhere we, we've had those moments i remember one time i was on doing weekend sports at channel 11 and you know we have a teleprompter where we read the script that we were having and the teleprompter went out and I just looked in the camera. I said, folks, this is going to be the most entertaining sports cast you've ever witnessed on this station because we don't have a teleprompter. So I'm really doing the whole thing by memory. And I'm having fun with the weather and the news person at that time as I'm doing it. And I'm almost going into my Albert Brooks moment in uh, broadcast news, you know, where I'm uh -huh. firing, you know. And so I'm trying to think of what other anchor was watching that night. He said, yeah, you were having a slight problem. I said, yeah, how did it go? He said, man, first of all, it was entertaining. You got it out. He said, only a person who was in the business could tell something had gone south, but you did a fine job. And my news director called me and said, yeah, I saw something was going on, but you were fantastic. And I said, well, let's make sure we get that teleprompter fixed before the next, next out, outgoing. But, you know, you're going to have those moments. You're going to have fun moments, but those are the ones you look back on and you say, this is the reason why I'm in the business because I want to be able to have those fun stories to experience as well as being on the call for a championship game or a big win somewhere. Uh, there comes good and with the bad highs and lows. 
Uh, but I've always told people, man, if you can't show up to have fun at this, you're in the wrong spot. Yeah. I often look back on those kind of quirky <clears throat> moments or those moments where it was most challenging mm -hmm. and find that they were really the most rewarding. Um, yeah. I think about something like when I was in independent baseball, a team in the Dallas area, I worked with the Texas air hogs. I had been with them for a couple of years and we ended up partnering with the Chinese national baseball team. And so two thirds of our roster was uh, from Team China. And if you know anything about Chinese baseball, uh, it's definitely down the ladder in terms of the world rankings. And our team ended up going 25 and 75. And we just... We that had to be a lot of fun. I will say this. That was the most fun I ever had. I came in every day with a smile on the face because it just... There was something about letting go. I think I, I had worked in that league a couple of years, so I kind of knew what the talent level was. And, and the first time I saw our new players practicing, I kind of said, eh, I don't think we're going to be very good this year. But they had a lot of uh, innocence. And by the time most players get to independent baseball, they're 25 or 26, they've been in affiliated baseball um, and it didn't work out for, for some reason. And it's easy for those players to get a little bit cynical about the situation in independent baseball, just, just them being there. Now, a lot of them are still very good and still have fun, but they can get a little bit cynical. And I often think about a player from that uh, team, from the Chinese national team, and he, he came in to the situation with, with all of his teammates, and uh, he did a magazine interview while we were in the in the about halfway through the season and he said you know when i i walked in and i saw that air hogs jersey in my locker that to me was the greatest moment of my life and i remember when i read it i thought boy i've i've seen so many players who came in here and said boy i i i failed you know i didn't make it an affiliated ball and they they feel like they have sort of this almost shame about playing independent baseball and here was this uh, opportunity for this kid uh, to feel like he was in the big leagues. And so there was a lot that was rewarding about it in that way. Um, and I, I guess I do look back on an experience like that and say that that really was uh, something. Is that is that maybe the curse of success? Do you look back ever on those moments that things oh, yeah. uh, looked bleak and say, boy, I actually kind of miss that? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things about our business, I don't know whether you know it or not, but the same team doesn't win every year. Yeah. There's only one team, there's only one broadcaster that's going to win, call his last game is going to be a win. And when you don't win and you know guys, and I've been blessed, I've been in part of a lot of winning, but I've known guys who have worked their entire careers and never been part of a winning broadcast. Mm -hmm. And when they've won, I, you know, I call them, I'll call them that night you know, after the game, after they've celebrated, say, hey, I'm so happy for you because you know what? None of this is guaranteed. And the only thing you can do is show up, look to have a good time, make the most of it. And I think the only way you can appreciate what we do, you got to lose a little bit. You got to be part of some losing situations, some losing organizations, uh, be around a few bad players from time to time, because once you get a taste of winning, you say to yourself, man, it was worth it. And you'd be amazed how many people will come out of the woodwork that will be happy for you because they know you, again, paid your dues and you, you've endured. You were patient, but you're progressive. And uh, it, it's something that as you get older, you, you come to appreciate even more.
Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, Mike Claiborne here in the LCRR podcast. We are hoping to hear him in the 2020 MLB season with the St. Louis Cardinals. Obviously, we hear him all over the place here in St. Louis, a longtime fixture, almost 40 years in this market. And a real pleasure to have you on today, sir. Um, yeah, just a, a real uh, interesting conversation, covered a lot of ground. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Joey, uh, I'm glad we were able to do it. Um, as I mentioned, I've been kind of following your career and watching you ascend. And I know it won't be long before you'll be behind the mic in a major league ballpark. Hopefully it won't be my job, but it'll be you know. somebody's job for sure. <laughs> uh, and let's stay in touch and remind everybody they can check me out on our, our website, clavesonline.com. Uh, we always have some fun podcasts and some a lot of information. Uh, but yeah, anytime you need me, man, uh, give me a holler and hopefully we'll be back to work here soon as well as yourself, sir. Absolutely. Well, uh, this has been Mike Claiborne. This has been the LCRR podcast. And uh, Mike, maybe you can just uh, hang around. I'd love to uh, just give you a salute here as soon as the uh, stoppage happens. This is the LCRR podcast. Make sure you tune in right here at Joey Descorzeta on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, everywhere else uh, across the world of social media. So long. Take care.